We're going to look at the next passage in Mark. So if you have your Bible, turn to Mark chapter 10. We're going to start in verse 17 in a little bit. Let me start. I, I was listening to the announcements and um, kind of like thinking, do I have that on my calendar? Do I have that on my calendar? Do I have that on my calendar? Some of you are like that. You're very much a long-range planner. You hear a date of something that might happen and you put it on your calendar as soon as possible. I am like that. I like to think ahead. I like to dream of future plans. I like to mark up a calendar. Sometimes I'll just print out a summer calendar just for fun and just put little things on there like maybe this, maybe this, maybe this. I just, and it, like I'm thinking about next summer already. What summer vacation is going to be like? What are we going to do? Where are we going to go? The problem is, is not everyone is like this. And sometimes you marry someone who is different. And so I'll ask my wife, what do we have going on in August of 2025? And she'll say, are you from a different planet? I don't, I can't even conceptualize that. We kind of work differently. I personally am a long-range planner. I like to think ahead. So, of course, I know that March 18th, 2025, is a massively important date for me personally. March 18th, 2025. You might, some of you are putting on your calendars now. It is on that day, March 18th, 2025, that I will officially cross the Brimley Cocoon Line. Some of you will have to wait longer to cross that line. Others of you have already crossed the Brimley Cocoon Line, and for that I congratulate you. It is a great accomplishment. For me, it will happen on March 18th, 2025. I will cross the Brimley Cocoon Line. What is the Brimley Cocoon Line, you might be asking? Well, the Brimley Cocoon Line is the point in my life, in an individual's life, where you are the same age as Wilfred Brimley was when he starred in the 1984 sci-fi comedy drama film Cocoon. Interestingly, Brimley, perhaps known best for his love of Quaker oats and his gorgeous mustache... Brimley was 18,350 days old when he played the role of aging retiree Ben Luckett. And if you're a little slow on the math, that means that Brimley, playing this aging retiree, was 50 years, 9 months, and 6 days old when the movie opened in theaters. It's become somewhat of a joke that Brimley was only 50. A very young 50. Uh, 50 is a very young age now, in my mind. Um, <laughs> Brimley was only 50 when he played somebody who's well past set 50. That's just the nature of Brimley's acting career. Well, the Brimley Cocoon line has become a very minor, very minor internet phenomenon. It even has a Twitter account celebrating various celebrities' passing of the line. The movie itself, in my mind, if I remember rightly, and I don't remember too much about the movie, the movie itself was not very good. Um, <laughs> But, but it did capture a human longing that is mysterious and shared and compelling. It captured the quest and the desire for eternal life. And so whether it's Indiana Jones who chooses the cup, carpenter's cup wisely, right? And he saves Sean Connery's life, or whether it's Ponce de Leon's infamous and kind of unfortunate quest to find the legendary fountain of youth in 
Florida, of all places, humans have longed for eternal life, a life that extends beyond the few decades where we get to breathe oxygen. We want more. How do we get more? It's a quest that we're all on. We all think about. Well, in 1984, some of the residents of Suncoast Manor Retirement Community succeeded where Ponce de Leon failed thanks to the help of some aliens incubating in a swimming pool and sharing their life force with Wilford Brimley and the gang. Um, Like I said, it wasn't a great movie. (laughs) 2,000 years ago, a rich man came up to Jesus in a huff and said, what must I do to inherit eternal life? That question is a good one. It's the question that has captured and haunted humanity And it was posed to the sovereign son of God one day. And Jesus answered this man. And that's what we're going to look at. So if you haven't done so already, even though I told you to, turn to Mark chapter 10, verse 17. And I'm going to read Mark 10, 17 to 31. And let's listen as we hear this story of Jesus' interaction with this rich man. And as Jesus was setting out on a journey... A man ran up and knelt before him and asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not bear false witness, do not defraud, honor your father and mother. And Jesus said to him, or the man said to Jesus, Teacher, all these I have kept from my youth. And Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said to him you lack one thing go sell all that you have and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come follow me disheartened by the saying he went away sorrowful for he had great possessions and Jesus looked around and said to his disciples how difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God And the disciples were amazed at his words. But Jesus said to them again, Children, how difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And they were exceedingly astonished and said to him, Then who can be saved? Jesus looked at them and said, With man it is impossible, but not with God. For all things are possible with God. Peter began to say to him, See, we have left everything and followed you. Jesus said, Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time houses and brothers and sisters and mother and children and lands with persecutions and in the age to come eternal life. But many who are first will be last, and the last first. Let's pray. Father, your word is a lamp to our feet and a light to our paths. And we now get the deep privilege of enjoying your word together. There's a lot in this story, a lot to ponder and think about. So as we examine this story and think on this story and study this story, show us the beauty of your son this morning. We pray in his name. Amen. 
Well, when you heard this episode just read, you perhaps noticed that it was divided into two conversations. There's a conversation that Jesus has with the rich man in the first part, verses 17 to 22, and then there's a conversation that Jesus has with the disciples, particularly with Peter. First conversation is with this rich man. Now, popularly, He's known as the rich young ruler. And other gospel accounts, Matthew and Luke, will add some details of this man's life. Mark doesn't say he's young. Matthew does say he's young. So I will probably refer to him as the rich young man or the rich young ruler. Um, Mark doesn't give quite as many details as some of the other gospels do. But uh, just for the record... Matthew says he's young, and so we're going to call him the rich young man. He doesn't have a name. You notice that, perhaps. He's unnamed. He's just some rich young man. And Jesus has this conversation with him. But after having a conversation with the rich young man, Jesus then has a dialogue, particularly with his ever bold and outspoken Peter, but with all the disciples, he gathers them around and explains some further things to them. And these two conversations, one with the rich young man and one with the disciples, these two conversations make up our text this morning. But this story does not come out of the blue. It comes after other stories in the Gospel of Mark. And if you've been with us for the last year or so, I think we've been in Mark for almost a year now, haven't we? I can't remember. It's been a long time. I can't remember what we did last. But we've been in Mark for a while, and we've been building these stories on top of each other just like Mark has done. He's leading to these. So this story is not just a, a random spot in Jesus' life. This is built on something. And you maybe heard it last week. Nate preached the previous section last week where Jesus rebuked his disciples for not allowing children to meet with him. He made this tremendous statement in verse 15, Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. So, Jesus has just said in verse 15, here's how to enter the kingdom of God. Faith like a child. And then, the guy who missed it shows up at the party, right? He runs in, you can see it, and that's how Mark describes it. He ran up and knelt before him. And you can almost hear him kind of out of breath here. He's like, sorry I missed your teaching. Sorry I missed the last few minutes. This is the earliest I could get here. I'm really important. I had a business meeting, a client just thing. It's just just been crazy. So he's out of breath. He just ran to meet Jesus. He's got this question on his mind. He missed Jesus' provocative statement about faith like a child. So he kneels before him. And you can imagine this well-dressed, successful, powerful, respected man trying Trying to catch his breath as he blurts out the question that's been plaguing him. Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? That's the question. And as has become somewhat typical of Jesus, Jesus doesn't just simply answer. He first challenges the man's assumption. Why do you call me good? Jesus says. No one is good except God alone. Now, this is a little strange way to answer someone who asks a very important eternal question, like, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Why are you calling me good? Back on track, Jesus. I want to know the answer to the question, right? Well, in the first century, Jewish people would refer to God as good, but they would only use that term for other people when it was significantly qualified. Rarely 
if ever did you call someone a good man or woman? This guy does not qualify his title that he bestows on Jesus. His address is to Jesus, who he simply calls good teacher. Jesus has showcased his divinity. He's shown that he is God throughout his ministry to this point. You've heard those stories here. Jesus has done things and said things reserved for God alone, that only God alone can do. And so, by his actions, Jesus has claimed to be God in flesh. You can't ignore that in the Gospel of Mark. Jesus is God in flesh. So, the address that the man gives to Jesus, using an adjective, good, that is most often reserved for God, seems actually fitting. Seems worth celebrating that this guy understands maybe something that Jesus has some measure of divinity. He uses a term reserved for God himself, but Jesus has shown himself to be God, so the address seems right. But Jesus challenges him. Why do you call me good? No one's good but God alone. I've often wanted to say that when someone says, hey, that was a good job. Why do you say that's good? No one is good. But, <laughs> but uh, I, I don't. Jesus is essentially asking here, do you even know what you're saying? When Mark wrote his biography of Jesus, the Roman emperor of the time was a man named Nero. You may have heard of him. Nero increasingly persecuted Jews and Christians during his reign, and one of Nero's less than humble titles was the good God. <laughs> Nero was known to his subjects as the good God. I imagine that this title was somewhat self-bestowed, and of course, Nero was neither good, nor was he a god. But he gladly accepted the title. Jesus, however, was both good and God, and he challenged the use of the title for him. So I imagine the rich young man hearing this challenge and sort of responding with a confused head shake, a desire to move on to the, to, to the answer to his in question. Okay, forget the good stuff. Let's just talk about the question here, Jesus. What must I do to inherit eternal life? And that's the key question in this passage. What must I do to inherit eternal life? Now, note two things about this question, the man asking the question and the question itself. First, what is the man looking for? He's looking for something he can do, isn't he? What can I do? What do I need to do? Give me a list. Give me something to check off. Give me something that I can rest on that I can do. What must I do, he says. Remember that. Second thing is he is not looking to Jesus for riches or for health like so many in that day and time were. He has that in abundance. He's young, as Matthew tells us. He's rich, as Mark tells us. He has power, as the Gospels tell us. He's, a good, he's got a good thing going on. He doesn't need riches or help from Jesus. He already has that in abundance. What he wants to know is, how do I keep this going? Because I'm afraid there's going to be a point somewhere down the road where this is going to end. So how can I inherit eternal life? How can I extend this into the future? Only twice in Mark's gospel is the term eternal life used. Authors like John will use it a lot. 
Mark only uses it twice, and both instances of that term, eternal life, are found in this passage. Once when the man asks it, and later in verse 30 when Jesus finally tells us how to receive it. There was a popular Jewish understanding that after the current age, there would be a new age coming, and only those acceptable to God would participate in this future age. And so as this Jewish man looks down the road and faces both his own mortality and understands that there is likely something beyond that, he asks, what can he do to ensure that he's in? How do I make sure I'm going to be with God in eternity? How, do I, how can I make sure that this life with God stretches on to eternity? And what does Jesus do? He gives him a list, which just, it just blows my mind that Jesus does this because we would instruct our Sunday school teachers here at Cross of Grace probably not to give children a list if they ask, how do I go to heaven when I die or what must I do to inherit eternal life? Well, children, here are five things that you can do to ensure that you have eternal life. But this is what Jesus starts out seeming to do. For those of us who know our New Testament, we might be a bit surprised to hear Jesus give this man a checklist. Doesn't John emphasize belief as the only requirement? Doesn't Paul preach faith alone? A few decades after this story, there was an earthquake in the city of Philippi, and a Philippian jailer asked Paul and Silas, what did he need to do in order to be saved in Acts chapter 16? Paul answered him and said, Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you shall be saved. Well, wait a minute. (laughs) That doesn't seem to square with what Jesus just said, did here. Jesus says, okay, you know the commandments, do not murder, do not commit adultery, etc. And Paul says, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you'll be saved. Why didn't Jesus answer this way to the rich young man? Believe in me and you'll be saved. All right, we're good. Let's wrap it up here and move on. Jesus doesn't do that. There's a significant difference between the Philippian jailer in Acts 16 and the rich young man in Mark 10. While both ask what seems to be a similar question, the jailer is in a different situation. He has nowhere else to turn. He has nothing else to fall back on. He has nothing else to put his confidence or hope in at that time. His only hope is Jesus. The rich young man, however, has something that Jesus can see through him too. He has something other than Jesus that he has built his entire life upon. And Jesus, who knows this man, even though they perhaps never met before, Jesus can see it. And Jesus works on exposing the alternative salvation that the rich young man has built up around him. And he starts by using a list. He says, you know the commandments. Do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not bear false witness, do not defraud, honor your father and mother. Six of them here in Mark. And I imagine the rich young man pulling out whatever the first century equivalent of a notepad would be and checking things off. He'd be like, okay, no murder, check. 
Got that one. Haven't done that. Good. No adultery. Good. No stealing. Okay, all good. No false witness. Check. No defrauding. Well, that's not exactly one of the Ten Commandments. I'm not sure what Jesus is doing there, but still, check. Honor your mother and father. Yep, I sent them flowers just yesterday. Check. All good. Okie dokie. Looks like I got eternal life, right? (sighs) Not quite. And so the man responds after checking the six boxes, Teacher, and notice that it's just teacher this time. He doesn't go down the good road anymore because he got corrected on that earlier. Teacher, all these I have kept from my youth. I'm good. I think I'm all set, right? Eternal life, secured. (laughs) This is great. That was easy. I didn't even have to do anything. I already did all the stuff. I just avoided some stuff through my whole youth. Verse 21, and Jesus, looking at him, loved him. Now, this is not Jesus responding to his obedience that, oh, you really did obey all, all six of those since your youth? I love that. I love you, man. You're so great. That is not what Jesus is doing. Stop there for a second. Jesus is about to completely wreck this guy's self-assured confidence. Jesus is about to devastate his quest for eternal life. Why does he destroy this man's growing joy and confidence. He does it because he loves him. Jesus loves this man, and so he's going to push him towards identifying something that's in the way. He's only gone through phase one of that conversation, and it's done out of love for this man. He sees this man's self-righteousness. He knows his idolatry. One of the commandments that Jesus skipped was, you shall not have idols. And because Jesus loves this man, He undercuts his mistaken confidence and exposes the problem of idolatry in this man's life. But just think about that for a second. Jesus loves this self-assured, self-confidence, kind of cocky guy. The Son of God who has calmed storms, who has raised the dead, who has healed the sick, who has cast out demons, loves this rich, young, religious, self-confident, self-righteous, in love with the world man, and out of this love, he pushes him to the brink. He says, you lack one thing. That man is ready there. He's like, I got six. There's only one more. Come on, I can do this. I can do this, right? The notepad's ready. A smile is beaming across the man's face. He's ready to write it down. He's got six easy check marks. How hard could it be to ace this thing and be well on the way to eternal life? And Jesus says, you lack one thing. Man starts writing, okay, go. Go, sell all that you have and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come follow me. Somewhere in there, the man stopped writing. The pencil slowly came to a halt on the notepad. This wasn't part of the Exodus 20 list. Without asking a question, without looking for an angle, without an objection, the man is disheartened by the saying. And he goes away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. Now, the treasure of heaven is right in front of this man. Jesus, who loves him, is standing right there in front of him. But he's been put to a test, and he quickly fails. You can't value your possessions above the Savior. All that you need to do for eternal life is join up with Jesus. But there's a cost 
You have to forsake everything to find Jesus. You can't have multiple saviors. There's only one. And the rich man walks back to his possessions, his functional savior, his stuff, in sorrow. He'd rather have wealth than eternal life with Jesus. One of my favorite Proverbs is Proverbs 26, 11. It's this little gem. Like a dog that returns to his vomit is a fool who repeats his folly. And that seems fitting here. This guy skulks back to his wealth like a dog returning to his vomit. He returns to his possessions when he has a loving, eternal Savior right there in front of him. The New City Catechism defines idolatry as trusting in created things rather than the creator for our hope and happiness, significance, and security. This is a fantastic definition. Trusting in created things rather than the creator for our hope and happiness, significance, and security. It's a great definition, but it should make us squirm in our comfortable theater seats just a bit. It's not just the rich young man who is guilty of idolatry with his wealth. We all fall in line with him, don't we? Maybe it's not wealth for you. It probably is, though. Maybe it's family. Maybe it's heritage. Maybe it's your career success or your academic success or your athletic glory of years gone by. Or maybe it's your political affiliation or the car you rode here in or the right and moral decency you think you have achieved. We are all idolaters. We trust in something other than the creator for our hope and happiness, for our significance and security. And for this man, it was his stuff, his possessions. And many of us are in the same boat. We live in the wealthiest nation in the history of the world, but bring on some economic uncertainty, some inflation, a rise in gas costs, a dip in the stock market, and our idolatry is quickly exposed, is it not? And so, all of us fall short of the glory of God. We regularly reject a loving Savior in favor of 401Ks and bigger TVs and fancier boats. Now, if the episode ended there, it would be quite devastating. (laughs) It would be hard to close up a sermon at this point. But as the man walks back to his wealth in sorrow, Jesus looks around and turns to his disciples. He adds to the somber mood at first by saying how difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples are amazed at his words. They had abandoned careers and their income uh, stream. They had abandoned that and were now living in relative poverty with Jesus. And they may have been thinking, I'm glad I'm not like that rich dude. And so Jesus simplifies the statement. Do you see that in verse 24? He says, how difficult it is it will, uh, sorry, he he says how difficult it is to, to even enter the kingdom of God. Forget about rich, poor, It's difficult to enter the kingdom of God. It's not just wealth that people turn to in idolatry. Humans have a unique propensity to turn anything into an idol and build their identity on that thing rather than on their relationship with Jesus Christ. Notice, though, something significant here in verse 24. How does Jesus address the disciples? What's the first word out of Jesus' mouth? Children. Children. 
We've heard that word in Mark before, haven't we? Often, children. Jesus calls the disciples his children. And it's more than a mere term of affection. These are his. They are with him. Throughout the last few chapters of Mark, this theme has come up, children. When asked who was the greatest, Jesus did what? He took a child in his arms and said, whoever receives one such child in my name receives me, and whoever receives me receives not me, but him who sent me. Shortly after that, Jesus warns people about leading little ones into sin. And in last week's text, Jesus happily received and blessed children, saying, truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. So how do you get into eternal life? You receive it. You receive it like a dependent child. And Jesus, in a gesture that should bring great comfort, calls his disciples children. After saying that it takes faith like a child to receive the kingdom of God. But the disciples don't seem comforted at this point. As Jesus continues to highlight the difficulty of entering the kingdom. You see that in verse 25. It's easier then, Jesus says, for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Now, over the years, I have heard many preachers try to explain away this little saying of Jesus. They have tried to wiggle out of this statement of Jesus. They've tried to emphasize that perhaps there was a small opening in the gate of Jerusalem that a camel had to supposedly stoop down to get through. And so it was very, very, very difficult for a camel to get through the gate, through the eye of the needle. Yeah. Go there in a second here. Others, others have said that um, the word for camel is similar to the word for twine. And in other words, you can get twine through the eye of a needle, but you got to wet it, and you got to really wiggle it down and pinch it, and it's, it's just hard. It just takes a lot of effort. you got to work really, really hard to get a camel through that gate or get twine through the eye of a needle. Now, not to rain on your parade here, but the word for camel in this text means camel, a humped beast of burden, okay? The words for eye of a needle in this text mean the eye of a needle that you use to sew with, okay? So, you know this now. You can imagine this. A camel will not go through the eye of a needle without some sort of supernatural, miraculous intervention. A rich person, or any person for that matter, will not enter the kingdom of God without some sort of supernatural, miraculous intervention. And fittingly, the disciples respond with exceeding astonishment. They're frighteningly shocked. If entrance into God's kingdom is as hard as shoving a giant, stubborn, humped beast through an itty-bitty little hole, who then can be saved, they ask. It's a similar question to the one voiced by the rich young man. Who can do anything? Can't do that. What hope have we then? Who can be saved? And Jesus looks at them, likely smiling again, I think, and said, well, with man it is impossible, but not with God. For all things are possible with God. Isn't that great? Isn't that a great verse right there? Yeah, of course you can't put a camel through the eye of a needle. That's impossible. It would be quite messy, even if you could do it. But God can do it. God can do it. Of course you can't do anything to earn your salvation and earn your ticket to heaven. Of course you can't. 
you're a rebellious idolater. But guess what? God can do it. God can do it. Friends, there is hope for us idolaters. The God who created camels and needles and wealth and rich young men can take a rebellious, idolatrous heart that worships the creation rather than the creator. He can spark faith in that heart and by grace bring people into his kingdom. There is hope for us idolaters. We cannot save ourselves. We can't do anything to inherit eternal life. But the eternal God can do the miraculous and soften our dead, hard hearts and bring us to himself. Here's how the Apostle Paul puts it in Romans chapter 5. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. And we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. How do we obtain access? Through our Lord Jesus Christ. How do we enter the kingdom of God? Through him. How do we inherit eternal life? Through our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. By faith in him, by grace through, uh, through him, through Jesus Jesus does the supernatural, miraculous work of fitting camels through needles' eyes through his death and resurrection. And I can't help but quote Paul again, this time from Ephesians chapter 2, 1 through 5. Paul says, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom... We all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and we were by nature children of wrath. We were camels trying to fit through the eye of a needle like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. God alone fits camels through the eye of a needle. God does the seemingly impossible work of saving rebellious idolaters because he loves those rebellious idolaters. And in his gracious love, through Christ's death and resurrection, he saves those rebellious idolaters. Amen? Now, it kind of feels like that should be the end of the sermon. (laughs) Kind of reached a high point there. But often, for those of you that are teachers, you know this very well, often when you're teaching and you have this climactic moment, you feel really good about something, there's one kid who has to make a statement or ask a question and kind of like deflate the balloon a little bit, right? You teachers know this. I was teaching the youth on Wednesday night, and we had multiple moments of this on Wednesday night where I brought us to this brilliant climactic moment and then some youth, some 13, 15, 16-year-old, asked a question that just and that's kind of what happens here and of course it's Peter because Peter always does this in the gospels it's Peter Peter makes what appears to be yet another poorly thought out ill-timed comment Jesus has just led to this climactic moment with God it is possible your salvation is possible through God's grace and people should be like singing here right and Peter jumps in and says see We have left everything and followed you, Jesus. What are you thinking, Peter, right? 
Peter's like, we're, we're a lot better than that richy rich idiot that just went away, aren't we? Because we left everything and follow you, so we're in, right? There are times when Jesus responds to Peter with rebuke, and rightfully so, and there are times where Jesus responds to Peter with deep graciousness. This is one of those gracious times. The disciples have indeed left everything. Go back to chapter 1, and you can read the story of them leaving father, boat, nets, income strain, all of that. Jesus' response to Peter and the promises he makes are incredibly gracious here. In leaving everything for Christ, he says, you have gained everything. Verses 29 and 30 contain the first promise. Jesus said, truly I say to you, there is, one who has, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions now I had to be honest i struggled with this verse over the years i'm trying to figure out what's going on here because it sounds a lot like the prosperity gospel i teach against in so much of the world that says have faith in jesus and you will get all this stuff if you just believe enough wealth health, whatever it is. I struggled with this verse until two things happened. First, I noticed the last little phrase in the first promise. Do you see it there? What is it? With persecutions. Oh man, sometimes you just wish the Bible skipped some of those little words there. Why can't we just have all this stuff and forget about the persecutions? But Jesus says, in this age, you will have trouble and trial and struggle. There will be persecutions. There will be suffering and hardship until Jesus comes back to inaugurate his eternal kingdom. So this stuff that you receive, whatever it is, it's not going to be perfect. It's going to be tainted by the effects of the fall in this world. So that was the first thing that helped me with this passage. The other was a guy named Jedediah. And I'm not sure how to describe Jedediah because he is a strange, strange man. He was part of our church in Madison and grew up with a very unique life. You remember Jedediah? He grew up with his mom and dad in a Christian commune in the Milwaukee area in the 70s and 80s. And this was not completely unusual. There were a lot of Christian hippie communes in the 70s. Some of you maybe remembered those. Jedediah actually, though, had fond memories of this time. Jedediah also frustrated me to no end with his wacko theological beliefs. He didn't believe in a closed canon, so he was happy to add all sorts of things to the Bible. He was open to there being a fourth member of the Trinity and not not opposed to maybe a fifth, sixth, seventh member of the Trinity. Uh, he tried to straddle the line between being a Christian and a Muslim. Um, thankfully, Jedediah wasn't too disruptive, and I was happy to have him in attending our church and prayed that his understanding of the gospel and the Bible and the triune God and the Christian faith would tighten up over the years. Sadly, I don't think it ever really did, but Jedediah helped me somehow understand this passage, and for that I'm thankful. Jedediah's mom and dad had left everything to join up with his Christian commune. And as Jedediah remembered his childhood, he remembered something fondly. He would say that he had dozens of brothers and sisters. In leaving everything, his family gained something. And I think there's something to this. I'm not advocating for us forming a Christian commune for the record in the southwest suburbs. Um, you can talk to my wife if you want to join the pro-commune team. 
I am saying, though, that in the church we have a host of brothers and sisters, mothers and children. We only have one father, that's God, and Jesus makes that clear in this passage. But we have been brought into a new family by a gracious God who knows we need relationship and we need family. And in the church, God provides that in abundance. I love my family. I love my wife's family. I've been blessed with two great families. But in Christian ministry and the Christian life, you sometimes leave your family. Our family lives 12 hours driving away. We see them two to three times a year. It's hard. It's sad sometimes. But God, in his mercy, has brought us into a new family and gives us family here. We still love and spend time with our biological family. We still honor our mother and father, but we have rich, sweet fellowship with our spiritual family here. We have been given much in this life. With persecutions, of course. (laughs) But that's not all. In the age to come, those who are in Christ, Jesus says, receive his very life, eternal life. We have eternal life through our faith in him. But it doesn't happen with how we like to order things. We like to give the reward to the smart, the hardworking, those who follow the law. But in Jesus' kingdom, many who are first will be last, and the last first. It's not the first or the last time he'll say something like this. Jesus will say this countercultural thing often. And sometime, someday, in the years that followed this chapter, a rich man died. He had gained much in his life. He made it to the front of the line in terms of wealth and homes and family and power. But when he died, he simply could not take it with him. Others, though, have gone to the grave with nothing, with nothing but Jesus and found that they had everything. If you think you have everything because you've gained wealth and power in this world, you really have nothing. And one day that will be exposed. But if you realize that you have nothing without your connection to Jesus, I have good news for you. You really have everything. Money isn't bad, it's not evil, but if you build your identity and security and meaning around your stuff, you're in dangerous territory. Perhaps you're wondering how to know whether you've idolized possessions. In his helpful book on the Gospel of Mark, Tim Keller gives a helpful check here. He says, how do you know that money isn't just money to you? Here are some of the signs. You can't give large amounts of it away. You get scared if you might have less than you're accustomed to having. You see people who are doing better than you, even though you might have worked harder or might be a better person, and it gets under your skin. And when that happens, you have one foot in the trap. Because then it's no longer just a tool, it's the scorecard. It's your essence, your identity. No matter how much money you have, though, it's not intrinsically evil. It has incredible power to keep you from God. Money is a tool that we have been given to steward. It is not a scorecard. We're not told how the disciples felt after Jesus' discussion with them. Mark moves on to the next scene. My guess is they didn't walk away from the conversation like the rich young man in sorrow. They walked away, I think, amazed at the grace of God, who even though they had little, had received much from their connection to Jesus. 
in both this age and even more in the age to come. As a culture and as individuals in our country, we don't like to face our own mortality. And as I draw closer to that brimly cocoon line, my mortality pokes its head out more and more. I wear contacts, and I've recently had to start wearing reading glasses quite often. I wear bifocals now when I'm wearing my glasses. This is, what, this is what happens when you approach that brimly cocoon line. Look on and be fearful. <laughs> I love my glasses, though. They're wonderful. They're wonderful. But we don't like to think about aging and death and mortality. We do everything to look younger and be immortal in our own minds. We don't like to face our mortality And so we ask, what can I do to inherit eternal life? And we think, well, maybe a combination of Botox and a keto diet and maybe some cryogenics in the future will solve that one. It won't. This age will come to an end for you and I. If we're in Christ, we have great hope for the age to come. If we're not in Christ, this is as good as it gets. So my friends, my family, treasure Christ more than your possessions. He's worth it. He's worth it. Let's pray. Our Father, you are a glorious God. We bring nothing to the table of value. Even if we've obeyed six of the Ten Commandments, we fall short of your glory. And as we look at your glory, at your holiness, we realize how rebellious and ugly we are. And yet you, in your grace, through your Son, reach down and turn our hearts towards you. You take us camels through the eye of a needle. Father, would you never never let us grow secure in our own ability. Help us to constantly look towards your grace. For those here who may not know you, would you reach down right now and pull their hearts towards you? We need your saving grace. And we're in awe of your saving grace. Help us to worship you. In Christ's name we pray.